Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm joined today by Alan Roth. Thank you, Alan, so much for joining the podcast today as a guest. My pleasure. So I'm going to give our listeners and our uh, viewers a little bit of background on you. Today's title is Simplify Your Life by Simplifying Your Investments. Um, Alan is a certified financial planner, writer, and founder of Wealth Logic, an hourly-based financial planning and investment advisory firm. You have a unique background in terms of not only your financial skills, but the business model that you embark on, which we'll talk a little bit about during our podcast today. But you know, what's interesting to me is that you really aim to spend time with clients in the beginning and meet with them on the in the beginning to create a one-time plan and then get fired that's that's not a typical strategy that we hear in the financial management uh, industry um and i i hear that you are the very proud to have the lowest client retention um in the field uh you have your mba from northwestern university and you have been in a, a number of very very well reputed publications including the wall street journal new york times bloomberg and others um, and your investment columns can be found in publications including AARP, Barron's, ETF.com, and Advisor Perspectives. So with that unique perspective, please lead in by telling us just a little bit about your investing philosophy, Alan. Well, quite frankly, I want people to have an exciting life, but I want their investments to be incredibly boring. Uh, in eight words, investing is minimize expenses and emotions, maximize diversification, and discipline. Uh, the, the data that the more you pay in expenses, the lower your returns is incredibly compelling. Um, and even if you have a low cost fund, emotions lead us to do the wrong thing. Stocks go way up, we get greedy and buy. Stocks uh, plunge and we panic and sell. So we've got to minimize expenses and emotions and then maximize diversification and discipline. So the diversification, it, it ends out that over the last 95 years, 96% of stocks have had an average return of zero. It's the 4% of stocks that tend to lead the entire market, and they're always changing. So the best way to uh, own those stocks is to own everything in low-cost uh, index funds. And then finally, you've got to have the discipline to stick to the plan. So in March of uh, 2020, stocks fell 35% in 33 days. We all wanted to panic and get out as, as COVID was uh, hit, hitting us. But the discipline says you've got to stick to an asset allocation, meaning that you have to buy. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. And the older we get, the more money means to us and the harder it is to invest. Interesting. Well, you've, you've touched on a question that I have given the times that we're living in. You mentioned human emotion. And while intellectually your plan sounds simple and straightforward and something that should be very logical for people to, to adhere to, I would imagine during the times we're living in now, it's harder than ever. How do you manage client risk and fear during times of uncertainty? I, I try to cause pain. 
to the client. So in other words, it's one thing to ask you, Arden, how would you feel if your portfolio lost 50%? And that's an intellectual question. But if I said, Arden, how would you feel if your portfolio lost 50% and you couldn't send your child to Harvard that they worked so hard to get into because you don't have the money anymore? So I try to um, talk about what the consequences would be. And that helps in setting the asset allocation. We, we take these things called uh, asset allocation questionnaires, risk profile questionnaires, and they're worse than worthless because the way we feel about risk is, is not stable, uh, number one. And then number two is they don't measure our need to take risk. My goal is not to have the client die the richest person in the graveyard. Once they've won the game, they can take risk off the table to minimize the impact of, of negative consequences. Why this business model? I mean, I have to imagine your peers in the industry are sort of baffled by the approach, but, but maybe I'm incorrect. So I'm curious, just what motivated you to go this route? Well, I've been doing it for 20 years, more than 20 years. Um, every profession on earth is fee for service. I, I gather, I don't know much about your business, but when you have a, a psychologist help somebody, they're charging on a, a fee for service model. Um, so I believe that financial planning should be fee for service rather than let me capture as many assets as I can of yours and charge you 1% for the rest of your life. I don't know what the market's going to do tomorrow. I, I, I won't know what it's going to do in, in 10 years. And the investing part of financial planning is, is fairly simple. The taxes aren't, and, and there's many other complications, but the, the investing is very simple. And what I do is, is help clients through the tax consequences of moving towards simplicity, of reducing complexity and moving towards simplicity, give them rules going forward. And, you know, my client are typically no more than most investment advisors. Granted, half of the investment advisors are really annuity salespeople. But, um, you know, I'm only for somebody that really wants to take control of their own portfolio and then manage it simply. It's interesting because it seems to go against the movement, which we're seeing more in the marketplace of advisors trying to have a holistic approach, not only trying to manage investments, but getting into other areas, you know, what it depends on the model, um, but answering questions around psychological health, managing medical, the, you know, helping families to find medical solutions, helping families to, to vet domestic staff and making life easier for families. So, do you feel like you're going against where the industry is moving? Um, do you feel like you're appropriate for certain types of clients that enjoy that hands-off approach? Uh, or do you feel like this is sort of a new model that we're going to see more of? I'm not sure it's a new model we're going to see more of. But, um, you know, I've gone to several classes and, you know, where we get continuing education for, for my uh, CFP designation. And, and really what we're trying to do is put our hooks into clients to make them dependent upon us uh, as their life coach. And, and quite frankly, uh, you can talk to my wife, you can talk to others. I'm still working on my own life. I have no qualifications to tell anyone how to live their life. So I am strictly a financial planner, not a life planner. Is there a size client that doesn't fit with your model? I mean, beyond a certain level of total assets, do you say 
boy, you might have issues that are more complicated than what can be dealt with in a one-time financial plan? Or do you feel that this model can work for anybody, no matter what level of assets they have? Well, yeah, at, at my hourly rate at 450 an hour and, and my belief that we've got to keep fees very, very, very low, I, I can't help somebody with a hundred, two hundred thousand dollar portfolio on a cost-effective basis. But yeah, there are many instances where it takes more than one meeting and, uh, uh, you, you know, one session, one uh, two or three week plan. Uh, because there are many assets they can't get out of. Tax situations are changing. Um, the complexity, I, I specialize in uh, complex because, uh, you know, I'm going to involve, I am a CPA, but I'm going to involve their CPAs, their attorneys, et, et cetera, uh, to try to solve the uh, problem because taxes are real. Developing a portfolio is simple if it weren't for taxes, tax consequences. Sure, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about this client retention rate. What does it mean to have the lowest client retention rate? And is that something to be proud of? Well, you know, I, I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, I try to do a plan and, and get fired. And, and let's face it, the easy model is to try to capture assets. You know, and I advise on billions of dollars a year. Uh, if I could charge 1% on that, boy, would I make a lot of money. But by the way, if I had that model, I wouldn't, wouldn't have you know, been, been able to advise on that, that amount. So again, it's like every profession on earth, fee for service, solve the problem. I have a monthly newsletter. Uh, anyone, whether they're a client or not, can subscribe to the free newsletter and they can see what my current thoughts are based on new tax laws, uh, new products coming out, etc. cetera. Um, so I'm not trying to die the richest person in the graveyard either. We want to capture as many assets as we can, and then I sell the business based on uh, a multiple of recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. It's the easier model. Talk a little bit about um, sectors and how you think about client investment. Are there areas that you say for clients that th these aren't advisable areas for them to be invested in, or are you pretty open on where they invest their money? I'm more than pretty open. I'm insistent that they be open. So I'll have some clients that don't want to invest in, um, you know, non ESG companies. I have some clients that don't want to invest in tobacco, alcohol, uh, et cetera. Everyone has different beliefs and such. And, you know, my comment to them is that they've got to own the entire market take the savings that they're getting from these incredibly low cost index funds, and then they can contribute that to whatever cause they believe in. So I don't know what sector is gonna outperform. I, I mean, you, you know, in, in the last hundred years, uh, the railroad industry was the dominant industry, then oil and gas, now tech, uh, probably in, in 10, 15 years, there'll be another industry that's hot. So I don't know what the hot industry is. And, and you know, the best advice that I can give to people is that I don't know the future. And, and that's a key in investing. The more we think we know the future, the, the more we tend to underperform. Do you have clients 
who prefer to invest in areas where they understand. You mentioned ESG, and you know, I'm imagining there are certain philosophical concerns clients have, but what about clients who say, I don't understand cryptocurrency, so I don't want to put my money there. Is that still the, the personal philosophy you have to encourage people to be as broad-based as they can? Um, or do you have, are there areas where if a client objects to investing in a, in a sector they're not comfortable in because they don't intellectually understand it, um, that you are open to sort of making an exception? Well, I mean, people typically invest in the industry they come from, which creates additional risk. So a lot of my clients now are coming from the tech industry who have made tens of millions, hundreds of millions, you know, when their company went public, uh, et cetera. And then they tend to invest in what they know, tech. And quite frankly, what they really ought to invest in is anything but tech because they want to diversify, in my opinion. So, you know, by buying, you know, one total stock index fund, one total international stock index fund, uh, one owns 10,000 companies across the planet, used to own Russian stocks. I'm glad it doesn't own Russian stocks anymore. But there are a ton of companies and industries I don't really understand. Now, when it comes to crypto, Bitcoin, you know, buying an individual stock, you know, an index fund doesn't satisfy a piece of the mind that wants to have a little bit of fun. And I talked about that in my book, you know, once or twice a year, I'll buy an individual stock just to uh, have a little fun with it. My family's uh, future isn't impacted with it. So I'm fine with clients if they want to buy a stock or two. Um, that can be less than, let's say, 5% of their portfolio to have a little fun with. But the only thing one really needs to understand is that capitalism works. In the long run, if we own thousands of companies, we're taking a smart risk, we're minimizing the risk in the market. Now, the market itself is risky, but we're maximizing the probability of having a good outcome. I would imagine just in your field, in any medical field, we try to maximize the probability of a good outcome. Are there cons to using an index fund approach as opposed to investing in individual stocks? I'm thinking beyond just the volatility that one individual company could have, but are there other cons? Well, you're going to own the Eastman Kodaks, the General Motors, the General Electrics uh, uh, of, of the world as well. So you're you're not going to have bragging rights about how I bought Apple when it's it's IPO, it's et cetera. Um, so you know less less uh, good things to talk about at cocktail parties, but COVID has put a damper on cocktail parties, so it's it's, it's not so bad right now. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I am a very naive investor, and as the market was crashing in March of 2020, I decided to put probably the first ever investment into the stock market. And I bought some Moderna stock at, I, I think it was like $38 at the time. And I now look like a veritable genius, although it's gone very far up and then come back down. But to your point, it was something I really bragged about with my family and friends and those who knew me well said, oh, that was just luck. <laughs> they were correct. I mean, I was sort of taking a bet that somebody was gonna come out on top with the COVID vaccines. And I took a chance on, a company that was based in, in the Boston area, and I'd heard good things about the CEO. But it is funny how um, it, it becomes bragging rights when you do things well, and then it becomes a non-discussion if things go south with a particular investment. Sure. Well, first of all, way to go. And yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about <laughs> my 
Priceline now booking, you know, 5,000% return, you, you know, when it almost went bankrupt. But I won't tell you about my uh, Eastman Kodak or, or Delta Airlines. And by the way, my gamble, my, my investment strategy is so darn boring that I've got to have a little bit of fun. So when I buy a stock, I buy a stock that I think has a 33 and a third, a third to a 50% chance of going bankrupt. And it's kind of like a venture capital model. You know, most will go bankrupt, but you know, two or three could do well and you could have one home run like that price line now, now booking. And of course I'll talk about that one and not the Eastman Kodaks and the like. Makes total sense. So how do you think about generational investment? But what, by generation, do you mean investing for the kids or, or uh, how, how things have changed over time? I think both. I think both, you know, how you see different generations thinking about making investments and then how do parents think about investing for the long term, you know, to provide for future generations? Yeah, well, when, when I started my indexing in, in the late 80s, which was still about 13, 14 years after Jack Bogle launched the first S&P 500 index fund. So back then, it was just very, very strange uh, what, what I was doing. But today, you know, there, there's more money in index funds than, than in active funds. So I think generations today that are, are, are getting a lot of wealth understand this, and, and they've avoided a lot of the mistakes that, that I made and clients of my age have made. Generational wealth, you know, there comes a point, I'm not a believer in like 100 minus your age should be your asset allocation or any simple formula like that. So a lot of what I'm doing is setting up the portfolio where the client, let's say, has plenty of money to live the rest of their lives and will build something like a uh, low cost, uh, high credit quality fixed income uh, portfolio to support the rest of their lives. And then they're investing for the children. And a lot of the investing for the children is reliant and, and who knows uh, whether it'll stay or not, but the step-up basis, meaning after the client passes away, the kids will get those assets and not have to pay capital gains tax on it. So a lot of what we do, I, I tell people the primary purpose of the portfolio is to support their lives. An important secondary goal is to pass it on to the kids, but the key word there is secondary. Got it. What would you say to the person who's starting out in the field um, and thinks they want to, you know, it's a young college graduate interested in going into financial management? You know, what advice would you give him or her? It's difficult because I did, um, you know, 25 years of corporate finance and consulting and was financially secure before I entered this hourly model. Um, so it's difficult for somebody that approaches me. They're typically interested in the hourly model, but I say it is a very, very long haul. It takes time to build the practice, et cetera. And, you know, most of my profession, I would argue, is sales. And, you know, I alert them they're really going into a sales industry and get some experience. Uh, and, and then if they want to change the model, that's kind of the, the way to go. But pretty much they've got to work for somebody else. Um, and working for somebody else means you've got to produce. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you, Alan, so much for joining us today on another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Thanks to all our listeners and viewers. If you're so inclined, please go to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a positive review. And we look forward to having you on our next episode. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.